This sermon was recorded at Highway Mountain View in Mountain View, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. All right, so like she mentioned, Highway Kids, thanks for hanging out with us a little longer because I would actually love your help for a few minutes. Um, I want you to help us learn some things. And so we're going to have a little story time and chat for any Highway Kids who want to come up and join me right here. You don't have to, but for those brave souls, thanks. Come on up. We can have a little story time. There's even a rug. It's nice and comfy. If there's any you know, big kids, you can come up too. It's fine. Um, thanks for joining me, girls. So before we dive into the story, I have a couple basic questions for you. One is, we're going to learn about a king, but what are kings or queens usually like? How would you describe a king or a queen? Or maybe where they live, or what they look like. Where do they live? Can you think of any stories or movies you've watched? Where does the king or queen live? Maybe in like a big castle? Yeah? Okay. What would it look like? Can you think of any, what are your favorite movies that have kings or queens or stories or books? My brother's ghost. Hi, brother. Welcome. Can you think of any stories that have kings or queens that you like? Not really? No. Well, what do you think a king or queen cares about? What do you think is important to them? Yeah. Their kingdom. Their kingdom, okay. What would they want in their kingdom? Yeah. Um, guards. Gold? Yeah. He said guards. Oh, guards. Yeah. Also true. Protect the castle. Protect the castle. Okay, yeah. Protect and the castle and kingdom. Good citizens. Good citizens. What do you think makes a good citizen? Like money. Money. Yep. And not littering. Not littering. Keeping it clean. Do you guys have any thoughts about what a king or queen is like? what they want? Camels. Camels, yep. A lot of kings did have camels, and they wanted lots of them, right? Okay, so we're going to think, we're going to read about a different king, and this is a story that you guys probably know, because we usually read it at Christmas, and I know it's not Christmas, but just because it's not Christmas doesn't mean we can't learn from it. It just happens to be when Jesus is really little. So it's called The King of All Kings, and all you big kids out there in the audience can follow along on the screen. So the King of All Kings. Far away in the east, three clever men saw the very same star, the star that God had put in the sky when Jesus was born. They knew it was a sign. A baby king had been born. They had been waiting for this star. They knew it would come. He's here, they shouted. He's here. And I'm sure if you'd been there, you would have heard them laughing and dancing and singing until the sun came up. At dawn, they packed up their camels, you said camels, and wrapped gifts for the baby. They brought their most precious treasures of all, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Yeah. Um. 
special, sparkly, lovely, smelling, gleaming things, just right for a king. The three wise men, actually if you'd met them, you'd have thought they were kings because they were so rich and clever and important looking, set off. They rode their camels across endless deserts, up steep, steep mountains, down into the deep, deep valleys, through raging rivers, over grassy plains, night and day and day and night, for hours that turned into days, that turned into weeks, that turned into months and months, until at last they reached Jerusalem. Jerusalem was by far the most important city for miles around, and as anyone can tell you, that's where a palace would be. And kings are born in palaces. That's right, there's the palace. So that's where they went, but they were in for a surprise. They went to see King Herod. Surely he'd know where this baby is, but he didn't. In fact, he didn't like the sound of a new king. It made him cross. He didn't want anyone to be king except for him. But Herod's advisors told the three wise men what was written in their books, what God had said about the baby king. Go to Bethlehem, that's where you'll find him. And suddenly the star they had seen in the east started moving again, showing them the way. So the three wise men followed the star out of the big city, along the road into the little town of Bethlehem. They followed the star through the streets of Bethlehem, out of the nice part of town, through the not so nice part of town, into the really not nice at all part of town, down a little dirt track until it stopped right over a little house. But wait, it wasn't a palace. And there weren't any guards, like you said, or servants, or flags, or red carpets, or trumpets, or anything. Nope. Did they get it wrong? Or was this what God meant? Sure enough, little house, there sitting on his mother's knee, they found him, the baby king. The three men knelt before the little king. They took off their rich royal turbans and gleaming golden crowns. They bowed their noble heads to the ground and gave him their sparkling treasures. The journey that had begun so many centuries before had led three wise men here, to a little town, to a little house, to a little child. To the king God had promised David all those years before. But this child was a new kind of king. Though he was the prince of heaven, he had become poor. Though he was the mighty God, he had become a helpless baby. This king hadn't come to be the boss. He had come to be a servant. So how is this king really different than other kings? He's not the boss, yeah. Normally we talked about how the king wants to be the boss, right? Or Thomas, you pointed out, or Thompson, you pointed out the houses are really different, right? Sorry, but he's got a little tiny house instead of this big palace, right? It's pretty different. What else? How was Jesus described? What kind of king did he sound like? Uh, tricking king? What? What's that? Tricking king. A tricking king? Maybe he surprised them. He was different than they thought. I don't think that's what No? Maybe he just wanted to be mean or something. No. <laughs> Trick. Uh, uh, what's the ug? <laughs> we talked about how a king has a kingdom. What do you think Jesus' kingdom was like? What was that king? Yeah. Some people didn't Us. believe in God. 
Some people didn't believe in God. That's true. So he, his kingdom was tricky. They didn't have camels. That's true. That was not the priority for Jesus' kingdom. What else? So Jesus didn't come to be a boss. How do you think he wanted the people in his kingdom to act? Nice. Nice, yeah. And kind. And kind. And share with people. And share with people, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Those are great thoughts. I think that is totally true. I think Jesus wanted people to be kind and share and cared more about that than camels and gold and guards. So thank you guys for reading this story with me. You can now go to your classes. And any other Highway kids, you are also dismissed to meet your teachers in the courtyard. All right. Right. So last week... We heard about this new king, this different kind of king and kingdom. John introduced our series, The Missionary, how Jesus is a king with a mission, and how we as his followers are invited to participate in that mission and ultimately to become more like him, to imitate him. And the Gospels make it clear that he really is the king and the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for, just like we heard in the story, that the one the wise men were seeking, this really was Jesus, And yet, like that story so beautifully concludes, this child was a new kind of king. Though he was the prince of heaven, he'd become poor. Though he was mighty God, he'd become a helpless baby. This king hadn't come to be the boss. He had come to be a servant. I love that line. Or as John summarized it last week, Jesus was a king who is humble, compassionate, and sacrificial. So this week, we consider then, if that is what the king is like, what is his kingdom like? Because all kingdoms have norms and values that dictate what life looks like. Things that answer questions like, who are the important and influential people? What defines status within this system? What is most important and prized in this kingdom? How do you get ahead in this society? And so Jesus was a new and unexpected king who inaugurated and introduced what was, in many ways, an upside-down kingdom from what we know. Because his is a kingdom where the answers to all of those questions, who and what is important and prized, gets flipped upside down from all the typical answers, like we just heard. Because across history and cultures, not just in ancient Rome or ancient Palestinian Judaism, Across time and cultures, power, wealth, and influence are more or less what's most important. And even religious communities have the same idea, which we see in Jesus' time among the Pharisees, and we see, again, across time and culture. Although, typically, in the religious communities, they just change the definition of what makes you influential and powerful by elevating a certain type of righteousness or piety or following the holiness rules in a certain way. And so while the specifics change, we see this constantly. And yet Jesus turns our world's values upside down and invites us to follow and join him in his radical ways in his kingdom. And we continue to use this language of kingdom, even though it feels a little bit unfamiliar to us in modern context, in large part because it reminds us that Jesus truly is a king 
It's easy to think of him primarily as a rabbi or our friend, both of which are true, but he's also a ruler and an authority. But we also use this language of kingdom because it was some of the most central language that Jesus himself uses in his teaching. In the Gospels, Jesus is frequently preaching about the kingdom, or the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. And it is the primary language that he uses for describing his mission and what God is doing through him on earth. In fact, in the Gospels, there are 81 unique, different kingdom sayings. It's not quite as common in the Gospel of John, but certainly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we hear about the kingdom often in Jesus' teachings. So given that, we could spend weeks answering this question of what is the kingdom like? Because he uses 81 different ways to describe it, and he never actually succinctly defines it. So we are hardly going to cover all 81 kingdom sayings today. Don't worry, we won't be here for four hours. But there are a few major themes, and I want to highlight two in particular this morning. Because in light of what we heard last week about Jesus as a humble, compassionate, and sacrificial king, it's not surprising that we see Jesus' kingdom elevates the marginalized and lonely, lowly. And he cares more about our heart and our inward motivations than our outward appearance. So first, as a humble, compassionate king, Jesus cares deeply about and actually elevates the humble and the lowly, the poor, the marginalized, the sinners, the weak, overall anyone who is outcast or overlooked or neglected in society. Like I said, in Rome and in just about every society, including our own, the ones who are elevated typically are the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, the authority figures, the leaders, and so on and so on. So who exactly is considered powerful and influential and becomes a leader might change depending on where we are, but the general structure is pretty common. And yet in comes Jesus who says these crazy upside down things. Things like this, he says, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. He says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Where he says, but Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Or blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So Jesus clearly indicates that his kingdom is a place where the weak and powerless and those typically considered last, they're not just allowed in, they're elevated. Typically, kingdoms are marked by power and grandiosity, and yet Jesus says the kingdom belongs to the poor and to children, some of the most powerless, weakest members of society. So Jesus is a compassionate king whose compassionate kingdom specially cares for those who have been at the bottom. Because he is a humble king who invites and lifts up the humble. So repeatedly, time after time, Jesus challenges social and political norms. But perhaps even more often, he challenges the status hierarchies in the religious community as well. 
Because good religious leaders affiliated with other good, pious religious people. And this was particularly important because they stayed pure and holy by staying away from those who were sinners or unclean, physically or spiritually. Because they believed that their righteousness could be contaminated or compromised by such association. And yet those unclean, sinful people that Jesus as a good rabbi should be avoiding, those are precisely the ones that he spends most of his time with. In fact, he doesn't just spend some time with sinners, he's frequently eating with them, which was a huge sign at the time of honor and hospitality and affiliation of saying, these are my people. In fact, in Luke 5 and Mark 4, he takes it even a step further by making one of these notorious sinners one of his top disciples. We see a story where he calls Levi, who was a tax collector, one of many notorious categories of sinners hated by Jews. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we see here, Jesus is not eating with the people he's supposed to. He's not eating with the powerful or the righteous, but with a crowd of notorious sinners. Not just one, but a great banquet full of tax collectors and others. This is not how a rabbi is supposed to act. And the other religious leaders see it and they're upset about it. What are you doing? Not to mention, Levi is now one of his top 12 followers, one of the men that he is investing in to carry on his teachings. And so over and over, Jesus flips our status and power hierarchies upside down. Because Jesus' kingdom sees and elevates the humble and lowly who are most in need of his good news. The sick who are most in need of a doctor and receive him. So his closest, most honored followers that we call his disciples are a motley crew of tax collectors and poor fishermen and some religious zealots. He frequently touches lepers and breaks those purity holiness codes so that he can heal them, not just physically, but spiritually and even relationally. He interacts with a sinful Samaritan woman at the well who no one wants to talk to and that he, as a Jewish rabbi, certainly should not have been talking to. He not only allows, but actually honors a prostitute touching his feet, wiping them with her hair and her tears and perfume, and says, this woman gets it way more than the religious leader who has been a bad host to me. Time and time again, Jesus welcomes and interacts closely with those that both the Roman and the Jewish kingdoms would consider at best insignificant and at worst unclean and contaminating. And honestly, that list of examples could go on and on because this is a central aspect of Jesus as king and the kingdom that he announced. 
because the humble, compassionate king has come and he says the kingdom is at hand, but it is not like the kingdoms of this world. It is for the humble, the often neglected, the sinners in need of repentance, in need of a doctor. And so to really see it, we need to see with their eyes, with the eyes of the humble. And so it's precisely for this reason that starting in a few weeks in October, there will be a formation workshop on walking with the poor. For about eight weeks, Seth Dixon will lead anyone interested in a time of really exploring on a deeper level Jesus' heart for the poor and the marginalized, which I have just begun to skim the surface of this morning. Because this workshop will explore what it really means and what it will take for us to truly join in this kingdom, to walk with the people that Jesus walked with, to imitate in heart and in action our humble, compassionate king who sees and elevates and loves the lowly and the neglected in our society. I hope you'll consider joining this workshop, and I would encourage you to talk with Julie if you want to learn more about it. And those spaces to grapple are so important because these are not just ideas, but we have to face what does it mean for our heart and our formation to become more like Jesus. It is so crucial for this to actually go inside and take root. Because the second key element that I want to highlight this morning of Jesus' kingdom is that he cares about our heart and motivation and not just our outward performance or appearance. He doesn't care that we just look like we're doing all the right things. He cares about what's going on inside. Jesus is not concerned with many of the things that we tend to focus on, the things that are visible to us, like achievements or influence or wealth or social status or even displays of piety and checking off the right religious boxes or the right behavior. Jesus is far more concerned with what is the heart and the motivation behind all those actions. Those things may not be bad in and of themselves, but what's really going on on the deeper level? That's Jesus' concern. So Jesus isn't satisfied with us just performing outwardly good. He wants all of us to align with him. In short, he wants his followers and his kingdom to imitate him wholly and fully to be humble and compassionate and sacrificially loving. And there are two short stories that make that abundantly clear to me, that Jesus' kingdom cares so much more about what's going on inside than just our outward posture. In Luke 21, Jesus elevates this genuine, humble heart of worship and sacrificial giving as far more important than the amount that somebody gives, than what we can only see with our human eye. He says, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So in this story, it's not that he's saying it's a bad thing that the rich people gave out of their wealth. But he makes it clear that it's not about what we can see. It's not about how much money or wealth or whatever we are able to give to God. That's a human measurement. 
He is concerned about the heart and the posture behind the gift. And so he recognizes in the widow what we see in Jesus as king, humility and sacrifice. Those two coins were likely a drop in the bucket of the temple treasury. They would have been easily overlooked by the people who counted it up later. But not in the kingdom of God. What gets easily overlooked and discounted by human measurements, in the kingdom of God, Jesus is defined by sacrificial love and sees this is an incredibly generous and sacrificial gift because she gave all she had to God. And that is the greatest thing that we can offer, to give all of what we have. And so he sees what is behind those two small copper coins. Similarly, he calls out genuine and humble faith over those outward displays of righteousness. Again, in Luke chapter 18, we get the story that leads to that familiar conclusion we heard earlier about the humble being exalted. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So here again, we have a temple scene that highlights the values and the hierarchy of the Jewish kingdom. The Pharisee in this parable hits all the marks, and he makes sure everyone knows it. But in contrast, again, we have a tax collector, the epitome of a known and despised sinner, but he is so humble, so genuinely repentant before God that he is the one, Jesus says, is exalted, a part of his kingdom. This is a complete reversal, a shock to all those listening. Those, remember, who were confident of their own righteousness. And yet he says, you will be humbled. And there are many more examples of this not least of which is one of Jesus' longest teaching blocks, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. There he interprets many Jewish laws, saying, you've heard these laws, but now I say to you, I want more than that. I care about the heart behind the laws. I'm taking it deeper. So he says things like, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't even have anger in your heart, which is the root of that murder. Where he says, You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, do not even have lust in your heart. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemy. And so on and so on and so on. So when we consider these two qualities of the kingdom, how Jesus elevates the lowly and looks deep to the heart behind our actions, Jesus simultaneously lowers and raises the bar to be part of his kingdom. He lowers it in that the invitation to join his kingdom is open to truly everyone. 
but he raises the bar because he calls his followers fully and wholly inside and out to imitate him, our king. Living with humility and compassion, generosity and sacrificial love for God and for our neighbors. Every week at the end of our service, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the amazing thing about that prayer is that we actually have a part to play in answering it. That God has chosen us to be the hands and feet of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We participate in the work of living it out. And in the coming weeks, we will consider further what that really means for us individually and communally as a church. What does it really look like to be made into his likeness and to join him in the work and mission of his kingdom on earth? But before I close this morning, I want us to hear how somebody else has grappled with this question, learning more about Jesus' upside-down kingdom and considering what that really means for us. Because a few people in our community just spent six or seven weeks diving deep into precisely this question in another formation workshop called Life in the Kingdom. They grappled for weeks with the truths that I have just begun to scratch the surface of this morning. And they just finished the workshop, and so Ted Peterson has agreed to share with us a glimpse of what that has meant to him. So would you join me in welcoming him up? Some aspects of the kingdom were, you know, very familiar to me, like verses where it talks about things like, to be called great, you, have, you must be a servant, or the last will be first, and the first will be last. And so that was very inspiration, inspirational to me at first. Um, and we really took a deep dive in how revolutionary that was, you know, for, uh, not only, you know, against all the values of our culture, but of Jesus at the time as well. And so it was, it was really inspiring. But alongside that feeling of being inspired, um, I found it surprisingly difficult to kind of grapple with uh, John the Baptist uh, talking, saying that the kingdom of uh, God is near. Because all of those amazing kind of upside down aspects of the kingdom seem so completely far away from our real world. And uh, in talking with others in the class, I really came to um, realize that I'd fallen into a pretty cynical worldview and kind of lost the belief that things could be better. And to use a shaky analogy, um, and kind of bear with me on this as best I could do, uh, I feel like it's kind of like being out at sea on a raft and say I have a lot of provision and um, there's some others around me and uh, so we're afloat and, it, and it's, in some ways it's really awesome because we're safe, we're not, we're not gonna drown, but in other ways it's, it's really bleak. Um, and so, you know, I kind of have my salvation, but, um, you know, the idea of the whole great sea out there and never seeing anything but seeing more sea is really kind of um, depressing, hopeless. Um, and I kind of given up on seeing the kingdom in the real world, um, and I just kind of content myself to kind of float along and um, just... Uh, 
uh, you know, get by and uh, had resigned to never see dry land. Um, so I really found that for me, uh, it can be harder to have faith that God can do something not only you know, in me or us or the church, but in the world. Uh, and so one of the most compelling things I took away from the kingdom is when we looked at some other verses, like the verses that lead up to and include the description of the highway in, in Isaiah where God talks about a world where um, you know all are valued and there's there's safety for all. There's no lesser. Um, there's provision and God is there. Everyone's dignified. Everyone's valued. And kind of that elevation that um, Lisa was talking about. Um, so going back to my analogy, how can I make that world look a little bit more like the kingdom? Um, well, I'm going to throw a, a life raft with somebody or share food or enjoy the, the community or, you know, pray or add words of encouragement. And those are all awesome and important, but I really latched on to something that Seth said where um, I think it also involves, like, when you actually tie your raft to someone else's raft, um, that's part of, like, what building the kingdom looks like, uh, kind of tying your faiths together. So that's kind of where I am on this journey. Um, it could be hard to even think about displaying the values of the kingdom outward to the world, much less, you know, believing that our world can start to look more like the kingdom of God. But I can just start in small ways to look for a way that I can sort of join with people and maybe experience, you know, building some small part of the kingdom together. Thanks. Thanks, Ted. So, like he said, a lot of the stories and the parables that we've heard are very familiar to a lot of us. But it's still a challenge to really see and really live fully into the reality of the kingdom coming, like Ted said, not just maybe individually or even just in our pocket of highway, but in all of society, on all of earth, right? Which is what we pray. And not only to see it, but to be a part of it be a part of that kingdom coming. And it's hard because we have a king who chose death on a cross as his throne. And so as his people and as the people in his kingdom, that is the path that we imitate. That is the king that we are to become like. That is the heart of the kingdom that we pray will come here as it is in heaven. That is the likeness that we are being formed into. And so this morning, as we are going to continue to reflect and worship, we can come to the communion table once again as a way to proclaim our allegiance and our devotion to this sacrificial king and ask him for the grace and strength to walk in the way of his humble and compassionate and servant way for all people. So I invite you to come to the center and take communion whenever you are ready, and we can pray once again, may his kingdom come, may his will be done on all of earth as it is in heaven.